Well, I invite you to take your Bible and turn with me to Psalm 127. Psalm 127. It is Father's Day, and while I'm not going to give a Father's Day message per se, I figured I'd let the theme of the day guide how I would choose the psalm that I would choose. We are going through our our series, the summer through the psalms. We've covered Psalm 119 twice. Um, We've covered Psalm 16. We've looked at the Word of God. We've looked at satisfaction in all that God is for us in Jesus Christ. And so I thought about this morning um, a psalm that would detail God's fatherly love to us, like Psalm 103, where a father, as a father shows compassion to his beloved children, so the Lord shows compassion to us who fear him. I thought about that, but we already did that last summer. So I wanted to move on to another psalm. I thought about Psalm 89. We are going to do Psalm 89. I wanted to do it for Father's Day because um, Psalm 89 was written by Ethan the Ezraite. That's where my son gets his name. Um, I will sing of the mercies of the Lord forever and with my mouth will I make known God's faithfulness to all generations. That's my prayer for my son. And so I named him after Ethan the Ezraite who wrote that psalm. We're going to cover that psalm, but not this week. What to choose. What guided me to Psalm 127 is I wanted to sit under the wisdom of the wisest father who ever lived on this earth. The wisest father who ever lived on this earth was Solomon. He wrote two Psalms, Psalm 72 and Psalm 127. And in it, as we read it, you will hear uh, it's very proverbial. It's, it's Proverbs-like. And Solomon wrote most of the Proverbs. It's also very ecclesiastical, if I could say that. It's like Ecclesiastes, which Solomon wrote as well. So Psalm 127, let's sit under the wisdom and counsel of the wisest father who ever lived, an earthly, physical father who ever lived, And let's listen to God speak to us and address us through him. Psalm 127, a song of a sense of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late, to eat the bread of painful labors, because he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. And how blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. Father, guide our time in your word. You are the greatest father of all. You are our only heavenly father. You are our Abba. But you've given us amazing pictures of earthly fathers. And even though Solomon, in all of his wisdom, lacked serious discernment in many areas and many seasons of his life. God, we know that, number one, you gave him wisdom and he wrote these words based on your wisdom. But number two, you gave him words and he wrote your words. And so we would do well to listen to them. So, God, I pray that you would guide our time. I pray, as as I always pray before our worship service in the back room, I pray, God, may the hearers of this message hear a better message than is preached. And may your word be clear, 
bold, powerfully preached so that we would rest in you and we would cease striving in our own devices, on our own ways, and we would turn to you and follow you where you would have us go. Teach us now and instruct us by your spirit according to your word. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Psalm 127 is classified as a wisdom psalm. We've seen wisdom psalms before. We've seen kingly psalms. We've seen lament psalms. We've seen psalms of trust. Um, Micah preached a psalm of trust. Uh, It's kind of a lament, and then it's a psalm of trust. Um, In Psalm 16, we see psalms of praise. This one is classified as a wisdom psalm, and it does sound more like Proverbs than a psalm. It sounds more like something you would find in the book of Proverbs than in the book of Psalms, and that's because it's written very uh, proverbially in a, in a wisdom-esque way. Solomon is the writer, as you can see, and it's a song of ascent of Solomon. He wrote it along with Psalm 72. And the theme of this psalm is very clear. It's very clear. Our work, our enterprise, our efforts, our labors, however you want to say it, only succeed by God doing the work. Anything that we accomplish successfully is only done by God doing the work. That is the theme of this psalm. The setting of the psalm is unclear. We don't know exactly when it was written. Some people say it was written during the building of the temple, the first temple when Solomon was building it, um, hence building the house. They think it's God's house. Uh, Some people think it was building the second temple after the temple had been destroyed and uh, the exiles came back from exile in Babylon and Assyria, and they were moving and, and, and came back to Jerusalem. And we see Nehemiah and Ezra were written during those times when the walls were being rebuilt, the temple was being rebuilt, the people were being rebuilt. Um, some just think it was an occasion to write on the work of God, and I would kind of fall into that latter category. I think it was just an occasion to write about God's work in our work. Um, even today, this psalm is recited after a child is born. In Jewish cultures, Uh, this psalm, as you can see, the latter half of it, children are a gift of the Lord. So whenever uh, a good Jewish family has a child, they sing this psalm, they recite this psalm together. It is a song of a sense. You'll see that in the superscription. It's a song of a sense. The songs of a sense, we haven't really covered one of these. They are from Psalm 120 to 134. You will see in Psalms 120 to 134, you'll see a little heading that says a song of a sense. And what that means is these psalms were memorized by travelers going to Jerusalem for festivals, for feasts. And as they would ascend the stairs to the temple, to get up to the Temple Mount, they would recite these psalms. They would recite them on their way. They would recite them as they would ascend into the temple. It would slow you down. Even in Israel today, Um, One of my uh, bucket lists is to take a trip with CBC over to Israel. Um, I would love to get some of my professors when I was in Israel for four months. I'd love to get some of them to help lead a trip um, and just gather together some people and go over there and see um, the the word of God in, in 3D, in 4D, really. It's just amazing what you can see. And this is one of the areas that always has impressed me ever since going to Israel. When I was going up the Temple Mount stairs to Jerusalem, you can actually read every single psalm as you take steps up to the Temple Mount. And the first step that you take, you read the first psalm of ascent, Psalm 120. The second step that you take, Psalm 121. And would you know it, that when you get to the top, you read the last psalm, and they, they match out, they correlate perfectly. It's an amazing way to slow down your heart, 
to remind you that you are entering into the presence of God. You should not waltz into the presence of God. You can't just, as you've made a long journey um, from some from Galilee in the north all the way down to Jerusalem, would enter into the temple, and God wanted and ordained that you would slow down. That you would say, wait a second, I have made a long journey. Chaos, trials, troubles, we've lost some um, family members along the way. You remember the caravan that was going with Jesus uh, and he was lost in the crowd and then found out to be back in Jerusalem. Um, it's just chaos. I mean, think road trip with your family and trying even just the packing of the car creates trials and sinful controversies. And so God says, before you enter my house, stop. So why this? Why this being a song of ascent? Why talk about children being a gift to the Lord? Well, I think one of the reasons is you are taking your kids into the house of God. They are God's. They're not yours. And so you're being reminded again, this is not your child. You are a steward. And we're going to get to that as we get to verse 3. Also, you could be reminded as you're entering into the temple that you have worked really hard this last year. You've tried all you could do to work and earn a wage, an honest wage. You've tried to work to earn God's favor, and that shouldn't be done. And this is reminding you, God has done all the work in your working, and God has already done the work. He's paved the way for you to be cleansed of your sin. You're entering. You have to work to get to the temple. But when you sacrifice that animal, it's God doing the work, not you, to cleanse your own heart. There are many reasons why this is a psalm of ascent. But the bottom line is, it would slow you down. It would stop you. You would have to read each psalm and recite it. Each psalm was memorized. It's one of the reasons why they're a lot smaller. Praise the Lord. If Psalm 119 was a psalm of ascent, I think a lot of people would stop being good Jews and and say, I'm done with this. I'm not memorizing that. But that's why these are smaller. They're just little um, popcorn psalms, if you will, that you can remember but but have a, a theme and a point to slow you down as you are entering into the temple of God. As one professor of mine said, This psalm is detailing how troubled travelers turn to God for a tranquil and trusting sleep. Uh, I think he had fun writing that sentence. I have been troubled in traveling to this place, and now I get to rest. Now I get to cease from work, and it slows you down. The reality is we are here only because God brought us here, just like they were at the temple only because God brought them there. The reality is that just as in Solomon's day, so too in our day, when we accomplish something, we want to say, look at what I did instead of look at what God did. We love taking credit. We are so prone to taking credit. Our culture is a culture of saying, you did it, and you didn't need anybody's help to do it. But the beauty of this psalm is that it really details how God fits into all of your life, into every area, whether work, whether life, whether um, family, however it might look in your world, God is the one successfully working and doing and accomplishing whatever it is that you are doing. So we'll split it into those two categories as we look at the psalm this morning. Verses 1 to 2 is point number 1, God working in your work. And point number 2 in verses 3 through 5 is God working in your family. So God working in your work, God working in your family. Let's dive into point number 1. God is working in your work. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, they labor in vain who build it. So we have laborers laboring, they're working, they're building, but if God isn't the one building, they are building in vain. Unless the Lord guards the city, the watchman keeps awake in vain. So again, we have a guard, we have a watchman, we have somebody doing a job, but unless the Lord is doing it through him, then he's doing it in vain. 
It is vain for you to rise up early, to retire late. It sounds like a, a verse that we should put on Hallmark cards for like college graduates and, uh, and high school students that are graduating to become college students. Like we should just say, hey, guess what? It's vain for you to get up early and, and to go to bed late. Like just sleep in. Sounds like you should just be lazy here, but that's not what he's saying. He's not saying that because we have workers. We have laborers laboring. We have watchmen keeping watch. There's a point there in verse 2. It's vain to do these things. It's vain to eat the bread of painful labors because God is the one who gives to his beloved even in his sleep. What's he saying? He's saying God is the one who is at work. God is the one who protects, verse 1, and God is the one who provides. God protects. He helps build the house and he helps guard the house. He helps build the city and helps guard the city. He helps protect you in your job. And he is also the one who provides the job for you. Verse 2, he's the one who provides sleep. He's the one who provides the bread that you think you're working for, but he's the one that is actually working to provide it for you. Psalm 121, verse 4 says, Behold, God is the one who keeps Israel, and he will neither slumber nor sleep. We sang that song this morning. God is the one who provides. God is the one who protects. In the words of the Bible, you'll see this a couple places in the Bible, that God's hand is involved in what our hand is doing. God's hand is involved in what our hand is doing. You say, yeah, but I'm the one working. I'm the one that's doing it. I'm the one working. Turn to Psalm 18 really quickly. Psalm 18 gives us a great picture. This is David. David is writing. You can see the superscription. For the choir director, a psalm of David, the servant of the Lord, who spoke to the Lord the words of the song in the day that the Lord delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. And he said, that's a big superscription, but the point is, David was successful. And you know David was successful in so many ways. He was successful in fleeing from Saul. He was successful in killing Goliath. He was successful in many of his endeavors. What does he say? Verse 1. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. You are my strength. Let's use this in the analogy of David fighting Goliath. In essence, David would be saying, you are the strength. You are the one that gave me the strength to accomplish killing Goliath. You are the one that gave me the courage to go out there. You were the one that gave me the, the power to defeat him and the strength to go out and fight him. I think a lot of us would say yes, amen and amen. I think a lot of the, the common things that we go through, whether in work, in life, whatever it might be, I think we also would say, God's the one who gave me strength. Thank you, God, for giving me strength. But then we say, yeah, but I was the one that, dot, dot, dot. Like, think about David and Goliath. David, it would be as if we in David's shoes were to say, God, thank you for giving me the strength and the courage to go out and fight him. But I was the one that picked the stone. I was the one that threw the stone. I was the one that had the sling. I was the one that gained the accuracy over the practice in the, the years that I had with all of the lions and animals and bears and everything. I was the one who did that. So God gave me the strength, but I was the one who used the strength. The reality is David would say, no, God gave me the strength. And God gave me the abilities to do all of those other things. Drop down. If you go to verse 31. For who is God but the Lord? Who is a rock except our God? The God who girds me with strength. There's, there's the girds me. Like he's giving me the strength to go out and fight. He girds me. He makes my way blameless. 
He makes my feet like hinds feet and sets me upon high places. And then verse 34, he trains my hands for battle so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. He's the one that did that. I remember I was on a baseball team uh, when I was in high school. It was a Christian school. I remember um, one of the biggest players that we had on our team um, hit a home run in one game just way over the fences and came back and somebody prayed at the end of our game like all good Christian teams should do and said, God, thank you so much for giving him the strength. I think like our, our theme verse was, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I mean, it's just typical Christianese little league stuff. And I remember this, this kid came to me and said, I understand that God gives me the strength, but I'm the one that's working my tail off out here. I'm the one that's gotten my muscles bigger. I'm the one that's practiced and been able to hit a ball further. I'm the one doing that. And I remember thinking, yeah, but you couldn't do it if God didn't give your muscles the ability. Like, that's my excuse. God didn't give my muscles the ability to grow. That's the bottom line. He gave this kid's muscles the ability to grow. Yes, you work, but your work would be in vain if God wasn't the one who grew those things for you, if God wasn't the one who enabled you to do it. That's what David's saying here. We would look at him and say, man, God gave you the courage. There is no way that you would ever have had the courage to go fight Goliath on your own. Amen and amen. But David would say, yeah, but God gave me the ability. God gave me the the depth perception. God gave me the hand-eye coordination. God gave it to me. And if we were to go, yeah, but David, I mean, you've you've been... a shepherd forever. You've been doing all these things to train yourself. He would say, but it's only God. It's God who gives me the strength. It's God who makes my arms able to bend a bow of bronze. It's God who trains my hands. Another way we could say it is God gives the victory and he gives the means to gain the victory. He doesn't just give you the victory. He gives you the means to gain the victory. He gives both. So the question is, how do you know if you have this mindset? How do you know if you have the mindset of David? It's in verse 3. I call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and I am saved from my enemies. How can you know if you truly rely on the Lord this way? How can you know if you see your successes in the way that David sees his successes? You know if you are praying constantly to God and trusting him. Others can say the same thing without that little call upon the Lord. A lot of people can say in verse 3, I am saved from my enemies. But they would say I'm saved because of what I do. I'm saved because of my amazing intellect or skill. David says, I am saved from my enemies because of the Lord. I'm only saved because of him. And he alone is worthy to be praised because of that. So my question is, in your work, in your daily living, do you see any success or any accomplishment, no matter how big or how small, Do you see it only as a product of God working in and through you? Do you pray in your work? Do you pray at your job? God, please give me the success that I need. Please give me all of the things that I need to accomplish the task that you are asking me to accomplish. You might say, well, but Patrick, I'm working. If I'm working, how can I be praying? You want me to pray, but I have a job and I don't want to lose my job by saying, excuse me, boss, I need to pray. Turn to Nehemiah chapter 2. Nehemiah chapter 2. This is so helpful. It's so instructive. God is the one who gives everything. God is the one who gave the victory to David and gives the means to gain the victory. God is the one, uh, Paul says it in Acts chapter 17, verse 25, who gives life and breath and everything else. God gives everything. So how are we supposed to pray and ask God to give us success? 
in the midst of working. Verse 1 of chapter 2, Nehemiah chapter 2. This is in the exile. Nehemiah wants to go back to Jerusalem, help build the walls. It came about in the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, that wine was before him, and I took up the wine and gave it to the king. He was the cupbearer. Now, I had been, not been sad in the presence, in his presence. He was sad, but he hadn't shown it yet. And verse 2, the king said to me, Why is your face sad, though you are not sick? This is nothing but sadness of the heart. So he can perceive you are really downtrodden. You're trying to not wear your heart on your sleeve, but I can see through you. Why is he sad? Well, he's also not only sad, he's afraid. He was very much afraid. Why? Because he wants to ask the king to go back to Israel, to go back to Jerusalem. He wants to say, free me, free the the people that you have kept in slavery. Verse 3, then I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? I'm sad because my home is destroyed. Verse 4, then the king said to me, what would you request? What would you request? Then the next line. So I prayed to the God of heaven and I said to the king. In speaking to the king, he's praying to God. He didn't say, king, hang on one second. Dear Lord, please help me. He's not saying that. The king says, what would you request? And he says, this is what I request. And as I'm requesting it of you, I'm praying to the Lord. I'm doing one and the same. If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor before you, send me to Judah, so the city of my father's tombs, that I may rebuild it. Ultimately, the king says, yes, go ahead. Verse 8, bottom of verse 8, the king granted them to me because the good hand of my God was on me. It's not because I asked not because I found favor. It's because God was gracious. He prayed in the midst of his working, in the midst of his job, he prayed and God gave the victory. Turn to Psalm 37. If it's vain to work without God working, how are we supposed to know that God's working with us? What are we supposed to do? Psalm 37, verse 5. This is an interesting verse, and this is an interesting paradox. A lot of people would read Psalm 127, and even this passage that we're going to look at in Psalm 37, a lot of people would read it and say, well, I can just be lazy. I don't have to do anything. If I do it and God's not in it, it doesn't matter, so I might as well not do anything. And some people would even say, verse 5 says that. Commit your way to the Lord. This is Psalm 37, verse 5. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust also in him, and he will do it. Just trust him. He's going to get it done. I have seen people who claim the name of Christ who would use this verse, some knowingly, some unknowingly, and say, I'm just going to trust God. And they use it as an excuse to trust God and sit back and be lazy and not do anything. Is that what this psalm is saying? Go back up to the beginning of the psalm. You have verse 1, don't fret because of evildoers, don't be envious towards wrongdoers. They're going to die. They're going to die quickly. They're going to fade away and their riches will fade with them. Their sin will fade with them. So what should we do? Verse 3, trust in the Lord and do good. So work. Dwell in the land and cultivate faithfulness. Work hard at being faithful. Dwell in the land and cultivate these things. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Work at delighting in God. 
commit your way to the Lord. That word commit is a very graphic Hebrew word that means roll up what you have onto somebody else. You have a burden, take pains to roll it up, to push it up onto somebody else, and then wash your hands of it and let somebody else deal with it. But the work comes in committing your way to the Lord. And what will he do? Verse 6, he will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your judgment as the noonday. He's going to work through your working. Trust him as you work, and he will work. That's not, it's not a, a way to become lazy and say, oh, God's going to do it, and if, I don't, if God doesn't do it, I don't have to do anything, so it's just totally fine. I can be lazy. Turn back to Psalm 127. Even in Psalm 127, there are laborers laboring. There are watchmen keeping watch. You have to do work. You have to do it. Now, it's vain for you to rise up early and to retire late and to eat the bread of painful labors. Why? Because he gives to his beloved even in his sleep. Literally, it's he gives to his beloved sleep. The even in his is added. So it gives the sense that you are provided for even while you are sleeping, which is true. But literally in the Hebrew, it's he gives his beloved sleep. So what's this verse saying? It's, it's a little tricky and it seems clunky, but it's saying this. Everything's meaningless if you try to do it on your own. Everything's meaningless. Vain, same type of word. It's not the exact same word that Solomon uses in Ecclesiastes, but it's the same type of word. Vanity, vain, 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 three times in two verses. If you want something to happen, verse 2 is saying, don't try and make it happen on your own strength. You can rise early, you can go to bed late, you can eat the bread of painful labors, of uh, toils that are challenging and difficult. You can do that all you want, but it won't profit you if God isn't the one doing it. So rest in him. Work hard, but rest in him. One commentator says it this way, hard work may involve rising early in the morning and going to bed late at night. But the psalmist decries this, as an inferior way of life if the hard work is only for the purpose of providing daily food and clothing for oneself and the family. The higher way of life begins with trusting the Lord in one's work. The blessing of God on the labor of the godly is such that his own are provided with all that they need and can rest without anguish. Anguish is that experience by which work is turned into toil. Human labor under the sun becomes toil when God's blessing is absent. Verse 2 is really addressing the workaholic. It's addressing that approach where you are fiercely self-sufficient. I need to do it. And when it's not being done or being accomplished, you are stressed. You are anxious. Now again, Scripture demands that we work. Let me just give you some verses. We can't turn to them for the sake of time. But let me give you verses that say work is good and necessary and you need to work hard. Genesis 3.17, Proverbs 21.25, Ephesians 4:28 beautiful verse on dealing with work. Work hard to provide so that you can give to others. 1 Thessalonians 4:11, 2 Thessalonians 3:10 and 1 Timothy 5:8 which ultimately says if you don't work to provide for your family you're worse than an unbeliever. Genesis 3:17, Proverbs 21:25, Ephesians 4:28, 1 Thessalonians 4:11, 2 Thessalonians 3:10 and 1 Timothy 5, 8. So we need to work. But what this verse is saying is there is a kind of work that is fretful, anxious, stressed out. And then there is also a kind of work that is 
free of anxiety, that is hard work, hard labor, but is done trusting the Lord. Matthew 6 talks all about this. Ultimately, I don't want to be building a city that God's not building. I don't want to be putting my work and effort and toil into something that God's not behind or God's not in. Verse 2 is saying, be careful where you are placing your energies, where you are placing your work. If God's not in it, then it's not going to matter how good of a job you do. And if God's in it, then work hard because God will supply the success. I don't want to be kicking against the goads. You remember that term in the New Testament, that the goad is that pointy stick that you would poke the oxen with as they're going one direction. And you're saying, no, don't go that direction. You'd poke them. The stick's always going to win. Um, I don't want to be kicking against the goads. I don't want to be trying to do something that God is saying, don't do that. How do we know what God's telling us to do? The Bible. Psalm 119, verse 105, your word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. We need the word of God to tell us what we should be doing. We need the counsel of others. We need the church. We need wisdom. Proverbs 24, verse 3 says, by wisdom a house is built. By understanding it is established and by knowledge the rooms are filled. We need knowledge, understanding, and wisdom, and we need that from others. Titus 2, older men will disciple younger men. Older women will disciple younger women so that we can all understand what we should be placing our energies and efforts and time into. Don't work for that which God isn't working for because then it's vain for you to work. It's vain for you to do it. So, Solomon starts by saying, point number one, God's the one who does the work. God is working in your work. God is working in your working. We must recognize this. What happens if you don't recognize this? Uh, Turn to Daniel chapter 4. Daniel chapter 4. You're familiar with this passage. What happens when we do not recognize that God is the one who brings the success? Daniel chapter 4, verse 28. All of this happened to Nebuchadnezzar, the king, king of Babylon. All of this is a vision that ultimately said, Daniel is saying through God's vision to Nebuchadnezzar, hey, buddy, it's not you who brought the success of your kingdom, the most powerful king on the earth right now, Nebuchadnezzar. And he's starting to let it get to his head. And Daniel says, um, Nebuchadnezzar has a a dream, and Daniel says, this is what the dream means. Um, Acknowledge God in your success. God's the one who gave it to you. You didn't do it. You didn't do it. The irony is, verse 29, 12 months later, Nebuchadnezzar is walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. And the king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? (laughs) Buddy, you did not get the the vision. You didn't get the dream. The dream said, if you do that, God's going to take it away because you did not acknowledge God is the one who brought the success. And so, verse 31, while the word was still in the king's mouth, he hasn't even finished saying these things. A voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. 
Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle. And his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes towards heaven and my reason returned to me. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever because his dominion is an everlasting dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. Mine's going to fail. His will endure. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing me included, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? At that time, my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom. And my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out, so I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. It was added. I didn't gain it. It was given to me. So, verse 37 Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven because all of his works are true, his ways are just, and he is able, please note this, he is able to humble those who walk in pride. What happens if you do not get the reality of 127, uh, Psalm 127, that you do not work to gain any of your successes? God's the one doing it through you. If you don't recognize that, God will remind you of that. God's plan A is your humility. Humble yourself. But if you do not do that on your own, God's plan B is to humiliate you. I've never seen anybody turned into a wild animal like Nebuchadnezzar was. But I have seen many people who claim the successes in their life as their own doing. I have seen them lose it all, utterly humiliated before God and before man, just like Nebuchadnezzar. God is the one who is working Even as you work, it's God alone who brings about the success. Turn back to Psalm 127. That's the first part of the psalm. God is working in your work. The second part of the psalm is in verses 3 through 5. God is working in your family. This is almost a test case scenario for Solomon. Solomon says, God's the one who brings about everything. You don't do it. And it's almost as if he goes to, in verse 3, one of the best, most practical ways to demonstrate that you can do nothing to bring about what you want. He goes to kids. He goes to children being a gift from the Lord. Verse 3, children are a gift of the Lord. Some of your translations might say heritage. Um, It's an amazing word in the Hebrew. The the Hebrew word is nachala. I love that word because you get to spit on people when you say it. Um, nachala. A nachala is something that God owns. And it's something that as God owns it, what he does is he, he willingly gives it to somebody else as a steward and says, I'm going to give this to you for a period of time, but I'm going to take it back. It's mine. That's what children are. Children are a nachala of the Lord. They are gods that he gives to us. We didn't work to get them. God gave them to us. And he's going to, um, hold us accountable to it. We're going to give an account to how we have been stewards of his gift. Children are the fruit of the womb and that being a reward. The fruit of the the womb is a reward. Now, reward is a very difficult word because it sounds, what's a reward? In our mind, a reward is I work for something then I get something in return. That's not what this means. This actually is the exact opposite. 
it's reward is a good thing. This word is a good thing that God has that he gives to you, not based on anything you do. It's a really difficult translation of that word. The fruit of the womb is a, you could say gift, but again, you're going to run into the word gift in verse 3, and those aren't the same words. So you can see this is difficult. But it doesn't mean that you did something to get them. It doesn't mean you are earning your kids. They're freely given. And just in the same way that God protects you in your work and in the city and with the watchmen, and God provides for you sleep, so too, it's kind of flipped. God provides kids in verse 3, and in verse 4 and 5, those kids become your protection. It's kind of flipped. So you have protection and provision in your work in verses 1 and 2, and you have uh, provision and protection through your kids in verses 3 through 5. But the bottom line is, think about this practically. In order to have a kid, you need God. Because in order to have a kid, you need a wife. In order to have a wife, it needs to be given to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 7, Paul says one man has a gift of singleness, and then he says another man has another gift of being married. If you are married, it's a gift. Proverbs 17, a prudent wife is from the Lord. Proverbs 31, an excellent wife, who can find the rhetorical answer to that is no one. You can't find an excellent wife on your own. Yeah, but I have one. If I have an excellent wife, and the Bible says I can't find him on my own, then how do I get a wife? God gave me the wife, right? Got to celebrate six years of marriage yesterday. God gave me an excellent wife. Did I find her? Did I get her for myself? Not really. God gave her to me. God gave her to me. But at the same time, how did God give her to me? Remember, we talk about the successes and the victories and the means to gain the successes. How did God give me a wife? How did God give people wives back in the Old Testament? Um, we just got through this in our family devotions a, a couple weeks ago. We we're reading about a search party that goes out to try and find Isaac a wife. Um, that's a whole other sermon for a whole other time, but uh, maybe we should start search parties again. I mean, you, you, you had to do something. You didn't just say, God, I really want a wife. Uh, I want a wife for myself or I want a wife for my kids. You didn't just say, I want a wife, and then sit back and go, okay, where's my wife? Where's my wife? You went out and you developed a search party to get a wife. Maybe we can start that again. I don't know. So God provides you the spouse as you work to find the spouse, but God's the one who gives her to you. And then once you have a spouse, God's the one who gives you kids. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Children are a gift. Can you make kids on your own? Genesis 30 would say no. You remember Genesis 30, Jacob and Rachel and Leah, that terrible triangle of love happening? And Rachel isn't getting pregnant, and she says some of the harsh words to Jacob. I just, I've never understood this. She says to him in Genesis 30, Jacob, give me children or I die. Now talk about pressure. I mean, poor Jacob, where do you go from there? And that's exactly what he says. He turns to her and says, am I in the place of God? I, I can only do so much and it's up to God. And if God's not bringing the kids, it doesn't matter what we do. 
God's the one that brings the kids. So as Solomon starts in verses 1 through 2 and says, you know what, as you work and you earn and you gain victory and you gain success, guess what, it's not you doing it, it's God doing it. He says, I think the best case scenario of that is think of your kids. They're a gift. You just ask anybody who has struggled with infertility and they will tell you, oh, God's the one who does it. God opens the womb. God closes the womb. I have some dear friends that struggled for over a decade with infertility, lost seven children to miscarriages. Doctors tried everything that they could. And the bottom line was, you can't have kids. And now they are on their second kid. They have a beautiful little baby girl. And they are having another baby in a couple months. You go back to the doctors, you ask, how did this work? I don't know. God opens the womb. God opens the womb. God closes the womb. And God opens the womb. How do you get kids? You have to have a wife. How do you have a wife? You have to have God give you all of these things. What happens when God does give you these things? Verse 4. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. So if you have kids, it's a blessing from the Lord. It's not that couples that don't have kids aren't blessed. What the Bible is saying here is that obviously, if you have kids, it's a gift given to you from God because you didn't do it on your own. You couldn't have done it. So it's, it's a blessing to have them. Now, verse 5, we always get to the question, whenever I talk about this passage or whenever somebody wants to ask a really good, tricky theological question, they always say, okay, how, how full, how many kids is a full quiver? How many kids? And I always say, I don't know. <laughs> I'll let you know when I find out. I'm not there yet. Um, how, how many kids do you have to have? Is it, is it a number? Can you give me a number? We are so legalistic in our minds and in our hearts. Just give me a number. I want a number of a full quiver. Uh, if you want a number, 34 kids. Sounds like a full quiver to me. Um, that'll probably shatter your quiver. Uh, I, I don't think I'm going to aim for that. Um, the point here is not a number. The point here is very clearly God gives kids as a blessing. And the more kids you have, the more you are blessed because they're obviously a gift from God. They're not of your own doing. So you hear, well... It's hard to have kids. Amen and amen. It's, uh, it's, they're too expensive, right? That's the biggest one. They're just too expensive. Um, and I would say, yeah, they are. But that's why we see all these babies being sold on eBay, right? Like, oh, I had them, but I can't afford them anymore. Like, no. We find a way, right? You find a way to have a kid. God provides. All I know is, I can't give you a number, and I don't even know for myself. I think it's different for everybody and every family. But what I do know is this. I think that the Bible would go against the, the cultural understanding of the American dream, which I believe at this point is down to um, 1.8 kids per average household. Um, I think in the Middle East it's 7.8 average I mean, just think about what that's going to do. Um, so I can't give you a number. 
All I can tell you is children are a gift from the Lord. Father's Day, amen and amen. Um, I read an article. It was one of the lengthiest articles that I've read in a long time. And it said, how, how happy are parents? Um, and it, went, it was a comparative to um, couples that don't have kids. And it just went down the line in a survey of, I think, 10,000 people. And it said, um, do married, uh, a married couple with kids or a married couple without kids have more money? Um, married couple without kids have more money. Um, do, um, it just went down categorically. Which one gets more sleep? <laughs> That's not obvious. Um, which one? And it just went down, 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 down. It had 16 different things. And then at the bottom, it said, which one is happier? And the, the married couple that had kids was exponentially happier than the couple that didn't. Um, so that would be biblical, right? Children are a precious gift from the Lord. And by God's grace, he's given the church the ability that if you aren't able to have kids biologically, number one, you can adopt. And if you aren't able to adopt, number two, you can adopt in the church and, and speak as a mother would speak to her daughter and speak as a, a father would speak to his son to younger men and women in the faith. God blesses in many ways, but it's God's doing. It's not our own. So God provides, verses 3, verse 3, God provides, verse 4 and 5, God protects. Through the kids, they are like arrows in the hand of a warrior. They protect. This is not only just, um, you know, uh, physically they can protect you, but also economically they can protect you. Uh, you, you think about uh, if you have kids that are able to help you in your older age, right? That's what God said to Moses and the people of Israel in Exodus 20, that you uh, kids honor your parents. He's not talking to little kids. He's talking to older kids that have older parents. And he's saying, you need to take care of your parents, honor your parents. And the more kids that you have, the more you're able um, to, to spread that out and, and be able to encourage your parents and take care of them. And you are blessed if you have a quiver full of them and you won't be ashamed as you train them and you send them forth. They will speak with their enemies in the gate. Uh, this just means uh, at the gate there were judicial practices that happened. There were, it was like a court of law at the gates of the city. And so um, what Solomon is saying is your kids can defend you. They can defend you verbally as you train them and your reputation might get tarnished elsewhere or in the gates of the city. They can say, no, look at me. Look at the example. I can defend my dad. I can defend him. Um, they're like arrows in the hand of the warrior. Fathers, I, I will just say for Father's Day, if your kids are arrows, they need to have three things happen to them. They need to be shaped. An arrowhead must be shaped or else it will just be a dull point. They must be trained to pursue righteousness, biblical wisdom, and instruction. They must be directed. If you shoot at nothing, you get it every time. So you must know in your mind what the goal is for your kids. And then you must aim that, at that goal, at that target, and shoot them there. And then you must release them. If an arrow stays in your quiver, then uh, a lot of bad things happen. <laughs> Let's just say that. You want to release your kids. You don't want them to be 50-year-old 50 50 people living in your basement, not released yet. Get them out. That's the goal. Let them go. Send them on a mission to go call the world to repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. Shape them, direct them, and then shoot them out. Let them go. I told Chelsea that this week as we were... As I was studying this, I said, I said, Chelsea, do you know one day you're going to grow up and, and leave and uh, you're going to live somewhere else? 
She said, yeah, I know, I know. I said, uh, I said is that, does that make you sad at all? Because that kind of makes me sad. No, no, I'm fine. Because you're coming with me, right? <laughs> I don't think you get the picture. Um, you got to let them go. Children are a protection against loneliness, abandonment, security and economic crisis, help around the farm. Uh, they speak on behalf of your reputation. If they're raised well, they will speak of your character. As the proverb says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when they're old, they won't depart from it. Or as one of my friends says, train up a child in the way that they should go, and when they're old, you will learn the tricky contextual nuance of that proverb. Um, Train them. Train them, train them. Because it's not you working, it's God working. It's God working. If you have kids, it's because God gave them to you. If you have good kids, it's because God gave them to you. They're not good because of you. They are good in spite of you. Um, let's just be humble and honest to say it's God. Even if you had the most amazing parenting techniques and directed them uh, to faith in Jesus Christ and, and did everything that you were supposed to do, David in Psalm 18 would say, yes, God gave you the victory and God gave you the means to get the victory. It was never you. It's never been you. It never will be you. You need to work. But whenever you have success, you turn back to God and say, it's only because of you. You gave the success and you gave the means to get the success. So God is at work in your work and God is at work in your family. The question is, do you recognize it? Psalm 127 focuses on the essential involvement of God in whatever you're doing. We cannot be self-reliant in any labor, whether we're building a city or whether we are laboring to give birth, which is labor. You are doing it under the power of the Lord. So this is my question in conclusion to our church. Where are you being self-reliant? Where do you take praise and glory for your own successes when you didn't even bring them about in the first place? Do you trust in yourself? Do you get extremely frustrated when things don't turn out the way that you want them? A lot of times we do that because we thought we had the power to make it happen. It didn't happen. It must be my fault. Are you going with God where he's going? Or are you kicking against the goads? We have to work. And we have to pray. The reality is some of us work without praying and some of us pray without working. Both are bad. We need to pray and work at the same time. Colossians 3, 23 through 25, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 1, 9, I work Uh, with the power of God that works mightily in me. So I work, this is Paul saying this, I work, but I work according to the power of God that works in me. 1 Corinthians 15.10, write that down. 1 Corinthians 15.10, Paul says, I work harder than everybody. I work harder than everybody. You go, wow, that's kind of prideful, Paul. And he says, but it's not me, it's the grace of God who works in me. The work that I'm doing is not me, it's God doing it. So my question is, just in the area of this church, just in, in our body, in our congregation, are we trusting God to bless and to bring the success and to bring the fruit and to bring the growth? Are we praying and are we working? Let me give you some test questions. Are we praying and are we working? Number one, how many people would be sitting next to you right now if everyone you invited to come to church just this week actually came? Are we working? We have to work. We have to work. How many people, number two, would be saved today if everyone that you shared the gospel with this week actually bowed the knee to Christ? We have to work. We have to work. Do you know the names of your neighbors? How many of them know your name? How many of them have been inside of your home to eat a meal with you? And how many of them have heard from your lips of the love of Jesus Christ for them? 
How many people at your work have you intentionally taken time to share Christ with, to reach out to, to meet a need, to pray with? We need to work, but we need to pray. How often do you pray for CBC and the ministries that go on uh, on here each week? Here's a question. If God answered every prayer that you prayed this week for CBC, what would change? What would change? Are you praying with me for a music leader, for somebody who could do that work? We're doing the work. We've interviewed over 12 people. But we need to be praying. Who's really at work? The bottom line is in studying all of this, it just kept putting me back to the gospel. Who's really at work in your salvation? Well, I have to believe. Well, Ephesians 2 says that the belief, that the faith to believe is a gift from God. You couldn't believe in God if it hadn't been given to you to believe in him. I need to repent. I need to turn from sin. I need to trust in God. Well, Ephesians tells us, no. You do those things only, Ephesians 2.10, the, the work, the good works that you're to do are only done in the power of God. The gospel says that God has already done the work for you. Just as God is the one who builds the house, God is the one who laid the foundation as we studied in Family Bible Hour this morning. God's the one who laid the foundation of Jesus Christ as the only way to gain eternal life, not through your good works. Your good works that you do are only possible through Jesus Christ. The good works that you do do not pay off the debt of grace that you have. They simply pull from that debt even more. To do good works, you need God and God's grace. It's like Lydia in Acts chapter 16, verse 14. For those of you who started with us at the church plant, you heard this when I preached through Philippians. Paul preaches a sermon. There's a lot of people there, and only one gets saved. Why only one? Did Paul preach a bad sermon? What happened? No, Acts chapter 16, verse 4 says that God opened her heart to respond. John 15, 5 says that apart from Christ, we can do nothing. So to God alone and God alone be the glory. Alone, 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 him alone. He deserves all the glory and praise. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you are the one who works in our work and works in our family. And I pray that you would work in our hearts this day, that we would work and we would pray and we would pray and we would work We would not be lazy, but we would see any time there's success, it's not because we had worked. It's because of your working through us. You gave us the means to do the work. You gave us the success in the work. You and you alone deserve the praise and the glory. And that is why we sing. That is why we gather. We want to glorify you and exalt your name. So we do that together even now. We pray in the name of Christ. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and sing just the chorus, uh, verse and chorus.